Have you ever fancied having a go at writing a song? If so, where on earth would you start? Perhaps you may be an experienced musician who would love to sit down with an award-winning songwriter and performer to hear about some best practice tips based on years of music experience. Well, now's your chance. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. My name is Ian Cleverdon and welcome to the audio podcast designed to help anyone who wishes to further themselves with their personal hobbies and professional development with a focus in this series on the creative arts. In this episode, I'm delighted to bring you my interview with the one and only Charlie Dorr. Charlie is one of UK's most respected singer-songwriters. In an unusually diverse career, her songs have won two ASCAP awards, an Ivor Novello nomination, and both the overall grand and a folk prize from the International Music Awards. She's one of only a handful of UK writers to achieve success across many genres, defined by the range of artists that have recorded her songs, such as Tina Turner, George Harrison, Celine Dion, Lisa Stansfield, Paul Carrick, Ricky Ross and Jimmy Nail. Remember Ain't No Doubt? She's lying. Only joking. You have to listen to the song if you don't know that reference. But along the way, she's notched up UK number one, US number four, top 10 hits in Italy, Germany and France. She's also composed for three BBC drama series and two films. Her own hit, Pilot of the Airwaves, is still on Radio 2's core playlist and is a worldwide radio favourite. She tours regularly with her long-standing musical compadre, Julian Lippmann, and continues to write for and with other artists. She also enjoys mentoring emerging songwriters when she's not touring or recording her own material. I must make a personal confession to having been a fan of Charlie's work since her first album, Where To Now, came out in 1979. Yes, I am that old. I first met her back in 2014 as a sound engineer on the northwest leg of a nationwide tour and have continued to do sound wrangling for her, as she calls it, when she and Julian are in my vicinity. It was therefore great to sit down without a mixing desk to talk about the discipline and mystery of songwriting. Stand by for a thoroughly entertaining masterclass. Tipping up the bottle, playing milk roulette. He said you gotta take a sip to know just what you're gonna get this time. Take a little tip from an optimist. You gotta take a risk. Charlie, welcome to Half Hour Mentor. I'm going to start off with asking you about your teenage years. What was the first job you wanted to do? Uh, the first job I wanted to do in my teens was acting. That was what that was where I was headed. I was actually at a theatre school, uh, so right. so that was that was definitely I wanted to be in the Royal Shakespeare Company. <laughs> <laughs> what drew you to acting? I think loving reading and. Being excited by going to plays, uh, we used to have every, every Christmas, my, my granny, as a treat, would uh, uh, pay for us to go and see a, a Christmas show. And uh, sometimes, if we were lucky, during the year, we'd go and see, uh, you know, a big West End show or something like that. And I thought, you know, that's definitely what I want to do. Right. You know, it was just so exciting, just yeah. so exciting. And, and so in a very, I, I kind of, I guess I probably made that decision when I was about eight and of course, acting did form part of, of what you've done in your career as well. 
Yes, yes, very much so. Uh, and uh, it, But it took me quite a while to uh, realise that there were other things that were just as important as acting, you know. And in a way, I wish I'd, <laughs> wish I'd found that out a bit quicker. So where did music come in then? What stage did uh, you feel that that's where you wanted to go? Well, my family were very musical. My mum played the piano. She was a really good pianist. Her mother played. Her sisters both played. My, my other granny, the one that used to take us to the theatre, she was a good pianist. They all were, actually. Yeah. The only person who didn't play was my dad. Right. He was audience. You know, <laughs> somebody had to do it. You know. And uh, so there was a lot of music going on. And in a way, I suppose, uh, you know, like, like a lot of kids, you think, well, I'm not going to do that specifically mm. because my parents do that. You know, so I'll, I'll, I'll do the acting. I think there were... my, my Granny, the one who, again, the one who took us to the West End shows, uh, she was an actress uh, from the age of about 16. And in fact, I've still got some uh, playbills from, from her uh, career. It wasn't a very long career because she got married. One of the first musical memories I've got, certainly, is of Rainbow. Oh, um, God. And <laughs> going into that, so yourself and Julian and Carl. I think Carl Johnson, was. yes. Yeah. Gonna, how, how did you get that gig? Uh, I was up in Rep in Newcastle upon Tyne. Uh, part of the Tyneside Theatre Company. And um, that was very much a gig I got because I played guitar, mm. although it was, it was a theatre, you know, it was, it was a theatre job. Mm. Um, and uh, I was up there, uh, Julian was up there, um, and Carl was up there. And one of the other actresses in the uh, rap company, her boyfriend was Mick Robertson, who presented Magpie. Oh, right, yeah. And he came up to see a show and, uh, and, and he said to us afterwards, um, although I don't think the three of us were actually all playing together, we might have been, I'm not sure, but he said, um, by the way, uh, they're looking for a new team to uh, be the musicians on Rainbow, and uh, why don't you audition for it? So we did. Um, and just for the, perhaps some of the listeners that may, may not be familiar with Rainbow, and you can go onto YouTube and find out clips of it all, but that must have involved writing several songs a week, I would have thought. To... Three, there were three programmes recorded per week, and each so each uh, show had a song in it, and they're original songs that you they're had original to write. songs. Yes, on a theme. You know, it was an educational program for, uh, I guess it was sort of three upwards, really, mm. um, kids who were at home anyway. It was like a British version of Sesame Street in a way, yes. wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, it was, and there were puppets, and 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 there were little cartoons, and you know, it was quite a full show, and um, so we had to write three songs on a theme. You know, and the theme would be you know animals or vehicles or or uh, i mean i've got some great memories of, of some of the subjects we've written about you know we blackmail each other with them actually julian and carl and, <laughs> about some of the terrible songs you know out of context of course you know you can re you've really got good taunting material there yes remember that song you wrote about a butcher you know <laughs> you know and uh, but it was really good training I was say, to say, that, yeah, from the point of view of having to write what three songs a week, yeah. that the pressure's on from a songwriting position. How how did you approach that? Well, I think with with innocence, really. I mean, I'd written, I've been writing songs in a very sort of teenage, naive way since I was about fourteen when I first got, got a guitar. Mm. So I had written some songs, but I hadn't actually co-written which was interesting I think that was the first time I'd written with other people I used to write you know sort of teenage girl songs that uh, you know I, w I wouldn't like to 
be heard again now. But but uh, I've been doing that. So that's interesting that you say that because that was the first time I collaborated. And the three of us, well, it's much easier, of course, if you have a, the restriction of a brief. You know, so if, if somebody says you have to write a song about, well, we did a program on wool. Wool. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, so cut to me writing a song uh, which was for a black theatre uh, production, you know, where they where they shot against a black background. Yes. For um, a dancing pair of gloves, you know. Wow. Uh, and, um, you know, it, and you might think, God, that's really hard. But actually, it's much easier than somebody saying, write about the wool industry or write about how you feel about garments or something, mm. you know, very, very specific. That's quite often um, what I've, in some interviews that I've done, where you have, if you're given a brief and you're given a time scale, then it's sometimes easier because you know you've got to get it done by that time. Absolutely, yeah. yes. The deadline is, is the great <laughs> shifter of, of your brain through fear. So moving on from Rainbow then, I think the next big thing, certainly that I remember is um, uh, Where To Now, the first album, Pilot of the Airwaves, of course, you know, international hit. How did that come about from working on Rainbow to being signed and, and getting the hit? Well, there was, there was quite a long period in between that, actually, where um, I sort of reverted back to my acting career because that was really where I was still headed at that point, mm. you know. Um, and so I did a couple of uh, TV dramas. I did some fringe theatre, you know, best forgotten, must, <laughs> much of it. Uh, but so, yeah, that, that's what I was doing. But, but all along that time, I, I guess I just started playing guitar more. And I don't think I really valued it so much uh, because I just had this kind of mantra in my brain that I was going to be an actress and I wanted to carry on doing that. But, you know, after a while... When people start saying they they like what you do, mm. it's hard to resist, uh, mm. you know, doing it, you know. Mm. And uh, so gradually I started writing more. And then I think my first gigs were, gosh, with, you know, little tiny fringe places. Um, and Julian and I did a gig at the Load of Hay in, in Uxbridge, uh, where we knew about three songs. Uh, uh, and... Um, and I was asked to do a night in Obelix, which was a pancake place uh, in, in Notting Hill. Uh, there was a, a blues player called Sam, and he couldn't do it for a time. And he said to me, will you stand in? And I said, I, I, haven't, got, I haven't got the material. You know, and he said, well, you know, just learn some songs and you know, sit there and do it. So that's what I did. Then I roped Julian in, and then I roped Carl in, and then we, we sort of became a band. Wow. It became a band that that was uh, it had had lots of different stages of names. Uh, Carl Johnson was acting more then in the in those days. He was he was doing a lot of good work, and and Julian was doing quite a lot of acting work as well. But I got them involved. Carl's brother Stuart Johnson, who's part of a um, a bluegrass outfit, country outfit out of Birmingham, he, we got him involved too. And so, you know, it gradually grew and grew. Mm. And suddenly it was a band who could do other gigs. Because how much of that was driven by thinking, um, you know, earning the money to pay the bills and pay the rent and that, that type of thing? Well, that was, it was very poorly paid. Just like now, actually. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's what paid. made me ask the question. Really. <laughs> yes, why, why are you still doing it? Um, don't you learn? Um, it, was, it was very poorly paid, uh, but... We had made money like we'd never known before on Rainbow because we wrote all that music. 
Now, it wasn't, a, by, by today's standards, it wasn't a king's ransom. But when you've been in repertory theatre, uh, and my first wage in repertory theatre was £18 a week, right? That went up to about 30 quid by the time, because I was there for two years in the company, for two right. years. So um, I actually even managed to save a bit of money in, in those days, and rents were much cheaper, of course. Um, but we, somebody said to me, and God bless this person, we're in the bar at Thames Television, and we'd only just started doing Rainbow, and this guy, I think he was a cameraman or something, and he said, are you, are you signed up to PRS? And I said, what's that? And he said, well, they pay you for, for, for your songs that get broadcast. And I said, but we're, we're already paid. You know, and we, we were being paid. Um, the first amount of money we got was £120 a week each. Now, that was a lot wow. of money then. It was actually equity minimum for TV, three shows a week. Mm-hmm. That was it. And we went, thank you, sir. <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, gosh, thank you very much. And so we'd saved money. So I was using that money, really, to, wow. to support myself. Um, and, and we got the PRS. Yeah. And that's a lesson to perhaps quite a few of the listeners, whether you're semi-pro or whatever, that if you're writing your own songs and, and broadcast, if you're playing them live, you should always make sure that you're submitting that you've played them live to PRS. Yes. Because there's the potential to get the money back. Absolutely, yes. You never know where it's going to come from, you know. Mm. And also, there'll be bandits out there yeah. who won't pay you. And they won't even pay you online. So if you've got some proof that, that you wrote something, make sure you get it registered properly so that you have proof. And, you know, they used to say, you know, if you want to copyright something, send it to yourself in a, in a registered envelope. <laughs> you know, well, you know, that seems very naive and I guess it is today. But still, you know, if you have the proof... So then, obviously, you had the Pirates of the Airways, massive global worldwide hit, and, and you know, that many people will be familiar with. That's through, was it Chrysalis, I think you were signed I to? I was with Ireland, that was on Ireland. Was Ireland. That was my first deal. Right, yes. yeah. Yes. But just talking about sort of the, being signed to a record company and now you have your own and yourself published now, how, what, how do you find the difference between the two, having been through both of those situations? Well, uh, on the plus side, uh, when you're signed to a record company, or certainly in those days, you had some, some financial backing. Mm. Generally, you got a bit of an advance. And also, you had uh, someone else to do all the uh, promotion. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't have to promote myself at all. Uh, there was a department that did that. Right. So you didn't have to do what you, you have to do now, which is, I still kind of slightly bulk at, is the sort of, look at me, here I am, yeah. isn't this great? You, you know, just want to get on and play. Yes, yeah. yes. I, I, I still cringe. At, at having to tell people how fabulous it's going to be if they just come to a gig. I, I don't, you know, it's, it's my internal organs all shrink when I have to do that. I don't, I still don't like it. I, I'm, I'm a performer, so I can uh, bluff it, you know, but I don't like it. And I, it was lovely in those days to have someone who, who would write something about you. It was very complimentary and you didn't have to say it yourself. And so that was good. And the finance and that sort of stuff. On the plus, on the minus side, it's just that someone else is in control there artistically. Uh, and of course, you know, they've earned the right to be it because they've signed you, you know, and you've signed a contract. But I think for me, in those days, I wasn't quite sure of where I was going. And so I was, and I was very well behaved and very sort of middle class. And um, yes, oh, that's a good idea. Thank you very much. Um, when actually, uh, in retrospect, I should have said, 
no, I'm not comfortable with this. This doesn't really represent me. And yeah, I, that, I, that's one of my regrets is that I, I didn't come forward and say, because I wasn't sure actually, you know, I'd never had a record deal before, you know, and, but that was the thing, uh, lack of artistic control really, yeah. that, that was a, definitely a, a minus for me. And it always seemed to be a big thing to aim for, to get signed. In, yes. Certainly, you know, going yes. back around sort of 70s, 80s and, and time, obviously the, there are fewer bigger companies now. Yes, um, absolutely. I, I remember saying to somebody, uh, um, a musician, I can't remember who it was, but I said, oh God, I, I hope I get a deal. If only I can get signed. If I can just get signed, everything will be great. And, and, uh, and they said, you wait, yeah. you'll do less gigs, when you want, mm. you'll have less control. You'll be this, that, and the other. You know what I mean? And I and I thought, oh, that seems very, very pessimistic. That's but right. He was actually right. And there's still examples of bands who have spent months producing and writing, and and they they had the album there, and it's never been released. Yes. And they, you know, if they can't buy the rights back, it will never get out there. Yeah. yeah. Yes. There's there's a lot of stuff on the shelf. Yeah. So moving on from, um, perhaps from, you know, where you'd, you'd had a, several successful albums and then you started writing for other musicians. So Tina Turner, Sheena Easton. How did that opportunity arise? Well, the first cover I got was via a producer called Christopher Neal, Chris Neal. Um, and I, I, I think I met him through Julian Marshall. Do you remember a band called Marshall Hay? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, I knew Julian. And, uh, and he said, you should send some of these songs, because we'd started writing together a bit, uh, you should send some to Chris because he's got a great memory and he has what he calls a fab pending drawer. So, so if, he, if he likes a song but he can't use it because he used to produce so many different artists, right. um, he would just keep it, but he would remember it. He wouldn't forget it. And so I sent him this song, Strut, because I was going through a period with, I was signed to Chrysalis by then, and we were going through a period of them going, hmm, nice, don't hear a single. Mm, oh, that's nice, don't hear a single. You know, I was like, oh, um, So I sent it to Chris, and he's, he really liked it. And pretty quickly he said, um, I'm going to play it to Sheena Easton. And she just had that, you know, big hit with is Morning it? Train, is it? Yeah. Anyway, she was, you know, she had a big profile at that point. She'd had a hit. And um, I didn't want to give it away. It was like, hang on, this is my hit. God damn it. And, um, so was that the aim that you wanted, You were thinking that this will be yes, your single? Yes, to, to, uh, absolutely. Of a, you know, keeping the career going. Something. Yes, yes, this was my chance to go to the ball. Right. And um, my manager, he said, don't be a fool. You know, she sells a load of records, you know. Yeah. And um, so... Uh, uh, she did it and and Chris produced it and um, it was a hit and um, but she did change it slightly because I had written it um, from the point of view of the character um, so I was a kind of uh, I was writing it from a man's point of view who was getting his girlfriend to dress up like a former lover of his you know so it was a kind of he was instructing her to do something right. and it was also it was written from his point of view Sheena didn't like that uh, because she thought people would think she was saying it. Uh, I was kind of hoping that people would use their imagination, to be honest, but, mm. you know, because I don't like finger-wagging songs that tell yeah. you how you should be uh, reacting. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, of course, I let, her, I let her do it. And it, so it changed it slightly. So, anyway, she had a hit. She had a big hit in the States. 
and it went on, you know what I mean? And so it was a kind of a new thing for me. I, I just had no, I'd had no experience of a, a hit for someone else. Mm. And it opened some doors. You mentioned about um, the collaboration with Julian, Julian yes. Marshall, and uh, you've written with many other people over the, even to the present day. How do you find that co-writing experience compared to when you just sat down writing yourself? Well, it's enormously different for every single experience for me. There is no pattern, actually. Um, the biggest, uh, the, the, the most conventional pattern was when I went to Nashville because there seemed to be more of a pattern there because it's more of a kind of business thing, you know what I mean? Like it's a you, factory almost, it's, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. very much so, yeah. yes, yes. Whereas, um, depending on who I'm writing with, um, I can sort of shapeshift and do different tasks, you know. Like for some people, especially back in those days, I would just do the lyric, mm-hmm. or I'd do lyric and the top line, the melody, or we'd both swap and swap about and um, when I write with Julian Lippmann who who is my oldest pal Mm. from from when we were 16 and we were at drama school together you know we know each other so well that it's a much more symbiotic process and although he's very very different to me and his taste in music is utterly different to mine Mm. you know but he because he's he's so empathetic he's a shapeshifter too you know so um, he'll write something in a certain way with someone else. And with me, um, if it's for me, it usually has to come, you know, initial, the initial idea has to come from me because it has to come out of my mouth sort of thing. But when we're writing for someone else, uh, we would just be, be first to the post with a good idea, you know. And uh, But with other people, it really depends. It changes each time. And I sort of like that, actually. Mm. I like the fact that you get stretched in different directions. And sometimes you have to just... Um, let them get on with it you know sometimes if it's an artist you have to make yourself invisible your work shouldn't be identifiable as a professional songwriter doing something very slick so if you're co-writing with somebody who will actually be performing that song yes yeah yes I think that's really important right do you have a preference in terms of um, the music lyrics how you you know what you prefer to that department that you'd look after (laughs) you like not really, actually. Um, it's lovely when they both come together. That's the ideal, you know, that you, you, you have a phrase that, that comes into your head and it comes along with a little tune. Mm. That, that's the most magic thing. And if you can catch that, you know, while it's hanging in the air, that's, that's a brilliant moment. Mm. You know, mostly what happens, uh, certainly in, uh, with stuff, my own stuff and for other people as well, I'll get an initial idea, or we, whoever I'm writing with, will get an initial idea, and we go, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we've got something here. But then the rest of it is sheer hard work. You know, it's yeah. just moulding it and making it work. And it's like, also, when you write a really good first verse and chorus, it's like, oh, what do we do now? Uh, on that then, but what's the filter? So how do you decide whether you this is really good, this is definitely going to be there, or you know, when do you decide to throw it in the bin? Or do you ever throw them in the bin? Oh, I do that a lot. Yes, I'm not very prolific. So how do you make that decision? Just intuition and distance. If I've got the luxury of distance, 
um, I can go back to something and go, hmm, that's not quite as great as I thought it was. That's going to have to go. So let it fester for a while and then Ideally, come back to it. Ideally, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. That's why I found the writing in Nashville with some people difficult because it was so quick, 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 quick. Mm. Get it done, get it done. And I know some songs can happen like that, mm. but I think certainly lyrically anyway, they often don't. Mm. Imagine that's good training, though, if you, perhaps going back to the rainbow example earlier, where you're given, you're over in Nashville, you've paid to go over there, you're there for a limited period of time, you have to be productive. Yes, that's good for me, because I, I am Olympic standard procrastination <laughs> centre of the country. So I also understand, Charlie, that you, you mentor songwriters. Yes. Right? Do you tell me a little bit about the process that you go through as a mentor and perhaps the things that you... You learn the mistakes that are being made and the good things that are coming about. What's the experience as a mentor? Well, it is a cliche to say you learn a lot from teaching, but you really do learn an awful lot from teaching. Mm. And I'm so I'm still I feel like I'm still learning really how to do it. Uh, and I've come across some great mentors who are obviously very, very experienced and, and have certainly have the stripes to be able to judge other people's work. Uh, but it's, it, is, it isn't one size fits all. It can't be, you know, every, of course, this seems, you know, blindingly obvious, but everyone is utterly different. And that should be encouraged, I think, you know, because, you know, in a world where many songwriters start with the idea of, of course, you know, I want to write a hit. That's not everyone, but it, it's quite prevalent. And people are encouraged to, to do that. And, and those, those kind of, certainly currently, you know, that writing a hit involves certain things you know of, to do with fashion and I would always warn against fashion because if you're following a bandwagon mm. you're always going to be behind it so I think it's really important to encourage people to look into what they bring to the party because that's the individual thing that will carry them into a career as a songwriter if they want that Something that's very specific and personal to themselves. Yes, I think so, you know, and that can be, I mean, I know that a lot of writers, uh, a lot of emerging or inexperienced writers say, oh, I, can't, I can't think of anything to write about, it's all been written about. But it's, it's true that you haven't written that before, so you will have a slightly different angle, you know, and that's always worth exploring. You know, I, I mean, I, I suppose it would be unrealistic to say, OK, if you want to write a madrigal, go ahead and write a set of madrigals and see what yourself gets signed. By, you know. <laughs> but there are certain things that inexperienced writers nearly always do, uh, I've found, is they always write too much, too, songs always really long, really, really long. And I, I mean, I can talk because I write really, really long songs too. So do what I say, not what I do. But but that's a really common thing. And, and it's a very good idea to point out to writers that there is only so much attention span that people have mm. if they don't already love you. Mm. If they already love you, you have permission to break every rule. You know, you can do anything you like. And I, that's why I envy, envy people like Tom Waits so much. What a career, you know. But you've got to get in that position in you the first have to place. Get, to you be, have to be allowed yeah. at the top table to do that. Right. You know. So there's an element of conforming to perhaps what is expected in the marketplace. Yes. To establish yourself. And then if you've then got your own brand, you know, you can think of the likes of Ed Sheeran, for example, um, that, you know, a lot of people will try to emulate Ed Sheeran these days. Yes. Um, but he's forged that himself and probably 
made the mistakes, you know, in, in getting there in the first place. Yes, it's. I, I mean, commercial, being commercial is is a really double-edged sword. You know, uh, I'm mentoring somebody at the moment who is deciding where they want to go. You know, and and that's another thing is that to, to remember is that people change their minds. You know, while they're in the learning process, they change. I mean, I've sat there for like a whole year with somebody going, I want to do this rock thing. I'm really, you know, I'm going to do this kind of really hard rock thing. And then, you know, you, you don't hear from them for a month and they come back and they, they're into reggae. That's what they want to do. You know, and you have to just take a breath and go, okay, okay, okay. It's, you know, that you've made that decision. And, and people do flip-flop. If they're doing a lot of listening, which they should be, that's really important as well. I think listen across genres. Mm. Listen to as much as you possibly can. That's really important. Okay. Read a lot and read, 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 read all the time. You need to do that because otherwise you'll just be parroting a load of stuff that's been said before. Mm. When you say read, is that... Books. Just, just books, books, articles, news, magazines, anything. news, anything. Don't just go... Don't just pick up your phone and, and, and you know, prod a few things and, and skim past. I, I call it spooler syndrome, <laughs> where you you spool past stuff. You go, there, done that. Oh, I get that, I get that, I get that, I get that. Um, listeners, I'm doing a, I'm doing a, a mime of somebody <laughs> <laughs> spooling through something on a phone too fast. Yeah. That's not what I think songwriting is about. If I've got a listener now who is thinking, I've always wanted to write a song, I play a few chords on the guitar, but I don't know where to start, what would, say, a couple of tips that you would give them? I would say you don't have to finish every idea you've got. You know, you can just put down little snippets of good ideas because, you know, if you're trying to build a mountain straight off, that can be very daunting. So if you've got some little ideas record those just do them on your phone or whatever just keep recording little bits of stuff and then you'll build up a little library of ideas if if they haven't recorded stuff before i think that's a good way to start because it can be so daunting and there's a voice recorder on all, all phones these days which everything yes have. yes yeah. it, you know you're not short of that at least also you know collaborate you know don't be shy yeah. to collaborate with other people because maybe somebody can just even if they're just sitting there and they go that's a bit long, or why don't you do that twice? You know, I've worked yeah. with people who just don't write, who don't write lyrics at all. They just do music. And on a couple of occasions, I've been stuck on something, and someone has said to me, um, why don't you just repeat that line? Just repeat it. And I go, God, I wouldn't have thought of that. Huh? You know, yeah. you can, when yeah. people have the luxury of being slightly outside the process, it's really yeah. good. Coming towards the end and our, our time's coming to a close now, what are you currently working on and what have you got planned for the future? Uh, at the moment, I'm writing uh, a collection of essays called Background Noise, uh, which is uh, I started a, a couple of years ago. And it's a, a collection of little essays uh, that are about my life backstage sort of thing. It's, it's not what happened at the gig, it's what happened getting to the gig. And it's not all about the gigs. I, it was going to be about, you know, my life as a performer. But I then I started thinking about my family and there are some great tales about my family. And so I wanted to include those uh, because some of it's quite unusual, I think. And I've swelled the whole idea to include that. I'm still discovering where I'm going with it, but I, I'm, I'm gradually getting more and more together. 
uh, and uh, so I'm doing that. And also um, because you know this <laughs> this shop never closes, I'm still gigging. I mean, we're just about to start a, a eight dates in February and March, and then we go on into uh, to May, and then we're doing three little sections of the short circuit tour. And it's called the Short Circuit Tour because it is done in short circuits. Ah, right. <laughs> uh, and, and that's uh, with yourself and Julian me, Lippmann. Me and yeah. Julian Lippmann. Uh, and uh, so we're going to be doing that. We're, we're setting off very soon. Um, and also we want to write some more stuff for a new album. And I'm toying with the idea of uh, doing an album of... It's, it, it could be called Faster. Faster, Faster. Because I have a tendency to write medium or slow tempo songs uh, and I'm very comfortable with that sort of mid-tempo thing mm. and when I sit down at the piano I don't play fast because I'm not really a piano player you know <laughs> so I'm, I'm toying with the idea of, of making it mainly um, more up-tempo stuff just as a kind of little goal for myself you know and Julian would be very happy with that because <laughs> he's Mr. Fast <laughs> as in Steel Ice Band and yeah, uh, oh, yes. yeah, playing a lot of fast stuff yeah yes yes so so um but um, don't tell him I said that because otherwise <laughs> everything will be at 150 Nobody miles an hour. Nobody else will hear that, don't No worry. one else will know. <laughs> don't tell him. <laughs> but uh, no, it won't all be fast stuff. But I, it's just an idea that I thought it would be a good challenge for me. Great. I've got one final question, which I ask all of my guests. And that's knowing what you know now and everything we've talked about today, what one piece of advice would you give your younger self starting out? To my younger self, I'd say... Stop talking and listen. Take your time. Don't be a people pleaser. Uh, don't think powerful people automatically know what's better for you than you do. Uh, as opposed to, you know, in talking about a good song, mm. you know. And to be kind, but don't be the most obliging person in the room, you know, because, uh, and practice more. Practice more and read more. Yes, I think that's sort of, covers it because I'm very friendly you see I'm very friendly and sociable uh, and and that's where I said I I reiterate be kind you know be kind to people because you never know what somebody's just experienced you know but at the same time it's important to to do what you believe in I think Charlie Dore thank you very much thank you so much to learn from Charlie during that interview and in particular her best practice tips on songwriting. I also really appreciated her reflective honesty on perhaps not having pushed enough for the direction she wanted to pursue in the early days of her record deal. Whilst big record deals as they're perhaps known are not currently as common due to the impact of streaming and with many musicians self-promoting as a consequence, it's still easy to think that you may need to follow a genre that appears to be popular, you know, perhaps like the Ed Sheerans or the Adels of this world, rather than pursuing your own style. My thanks go to Charlie for sharing a wonderful career journey and advice with us. However, that's not all. At the end of the interview, I asked five quick fire questions about a songwriting approach and what she considered to be the best song ever written. You can hear the results of this in a short bonus episode being released the day after this one. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the series wherever you get your pods and review the back catalogue. You can leave feedback about the episode through social media by searching for Half Hour Mentor or via the email link in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and until next time, bye for now. Thank you.